You're listening to the expository preaching ministry of Kootenai Community Church, located in Kootenai, Idaho. We pray that Christ is exalted and your spirit is blessed by the teaching of God's Word. For more information about Kootenai Church, please visit us online at kootenaichurch.org. In a couple of weekends breaks from the Gospel of John, and we are well served by the pulpit ministry of both Dave and Cornell, but we return today to your regularly scheduled mediocrity, so we are back in John chapter 17, and uh, give a little bit of a, a background and review. If you're like me, you have a hard time remembering what you had for lunch a week ago, um, and you're probably going to have a hard time remembering where we were at three weeks ago, so I'm gonna, we're going to read verses 1 through 12, and then I'm going to give you a couple quick sentences of review of what we've covered so far. John chapter 17, Jesus spoke these things, and lifting up his eyes to heaven, he said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you, even as you gave him authority over all flesh, that to all whom you have given him he may give eternal life. This is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. I glorified you on the earth, having accomplished the work which you have given me to do. Now, Father, glorify me together with yourself, with the glory which I had with you before the world was. I have manifested your name to the men whom you gave me out of the world. They were yours and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Now they have come to know that everything you have given me is from you. For the words which you gave me I have given to them, and they received them and truly understood that I came forth from you, and they believed that you sent me. I ask on their behalf. I do not ask on behalf of the world, but of those whom you have given me, for they are yours. And all things that are mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I have been glorified in them. I'm no longer in the world, and yet they themselves are in the world. And I come to you, Holy Father, keep them in your name, the name which you have given me, that they may be one even as we are. While I was with them, I was keeping them in your name, which you have given me, and I guarded them, and not one of them perished, but the son of perdition, so that the scripture would be fulfilled. Let's pray together. Our Father, we do ask that you would give to us wisdom in your word, and that as we hear the word rightly preached today, that we may hear your voice in the pages of Scripture. Give us instruction through your word today and help us to receive it, to understand it. We pray that you would help us to think rightly concerning the things that we see in this text and to understand it, that we may give to you an attitude of obedience and a heartfelt obedience to your word. Keep us from error and, and be our teacher, we pray this morning, through this passage in Christ's name. Amen. Well, just to reset where we're at in John chapter 17, this is the Lord's final prayer on the night before he was crucified, and he is with the disciples. He is praying for the 11, and through the 11, really, to all believers who have been given to him by the Father. And the Lord Jesus is praying for those whom the Father has given to him. He has said that he has received authority from the Father to give life to all those whom the Father has given to him. He has received authority over all flesh. He has been given by the Father a people for him to save. He has been given a saving work to do, which Jesus said he had accomplished that work. And he has been given a name from the Father that is a character and a person to reveal to his people, which the Lord Jesus says he has done. And this, this then has brought about the salvation of his people. And Jesus has affirmed that everybody that the Father has given to him belonged to the Father. And the Father, having given them to the Son, they also belong to the Son so that we as his people are the unique possession of the triune God. We belong to the Father, we belong to the Son, and we belong to the Holy Spirit. 
And what we get in John 17 is inter-Trinitarian dialogue as the Son is speaking to the Father about those whom the Father has given to him. And in this context, specifically, it is the 11 that were given to him. Judas, remember, is absent from this, the time of this prayer. Judas has gone off to, to gather the Jewish leadership and betray Christ into their hands. And so he is praying for these 11 believers who are there, affirming that the Father has given these men to him. But in praying for them, he also prays certain things that, that we know are also true of us. Because all believers have been given by the Father to the Son for the Son to save. And so now we ask the question, the Father having given these people to the Son, the Son having come into the world to save these people, offered a sacrifice to atone and pay for their sin, and having revealed the nature of and the glory of the Father to them, so that they see Him, that they know Him, they have been brought to faith in Him, they have beheld the Son and believed upon the Son and received eternal life, that is true of these eleven men, now what will happen to them? Is it possible that those whom the Father has given to the Son and the Son has saved and given eternal life to, is it possible for them to not remain, to not be kept, and to finally perish in eternal flames? Is that a possibility? Is it possible that the Son and the Father, having done all of this for their own name's sake and for their own glory, that these people whom the Father has given to the Son should not be kept, but in fact should perish? Has God left the accomplishment of his eternal purposes and the glory of his own name up to the whims and the will of men? Has he left this up to chance? Or does the Father and the Son work to preserve and keep those whom he saves? Now, if you know if you've been here for more than five weeks, you know what the answer to that question is. The Father and the Son are committed and do work to preserve and keep all those whom he saves. And that brings us to verse 11 and 12. When we finished last time in John 17, we got through the end of verse 10. Today we're looking at verses 11 and 12. And in verse 11, we see the work of the Father in keeping his people. And then in verse 12, Jesus describes his own work of keeping his people. Verse 11 and 12 again. Verse 11, I am no longer in the world, and yet they themselves are in the world. And I come to you, Holy Father, keep them in your name, the name which you have given me, that they may be one even as we are. While I was with them, I was keeping them in your name, which you have given me, and I guarded them, and not one of them perished, but the son of perdition, so that the scripture would be fulfilled. In verse 11, we have the work of the Father in keeping his people, and in verse 12, the work of the Son in keeping his people. So look at verse 11 and notice why it is that the Son, the Lord Jesus, prays that the Father would keep his people. Because he says in verse 11, I am no longer in the world, and yet they themselves are in the world, and so I come to you, Holy Father. That is the concern of the Lord Jesus for those who are left in the world. Notice his concern. He is coming to the Father and he is asking the Father on behalf of these eleven and us because he is leaving them in the world. And that is the cause of great concern. The Lord is concerned for his people because he was leaving them. And he speaks of having actually already left them. Notice the tense of the verb. I am no longer in the world. Actually, he was still in the world. And it's not that he is confused as to whether where he is at. It is that he is describing his, his exit and return to the Father in language that is intended to communicate the imminency and the certainty of his return to the Father. His going to the be with the Father and leaving the world was so certain and so close that he speaks as if it has already happened. And he says to the Father, I'm no longer in the world, but here is his great concern. He was leaving these eleven in the world. And for three years he had been their teacher. 
He had been their rabbi. He had been their instructor. He had been their protector. He had guarded them and protected them from the Pharisees. He had kept them from false teaching. He had prayed for them. He had taught them. He had been with them. And now he is leaving. And he said to them earlier this evening, where I'm going, you cannot come. So he was leaving and going back to the Father. And now he is leaving them in the world. And that is cause for great concern because of everything he has said about the world back in chapter 15. The world hates you, right? Did we not understand? Did we not see there that we have every reason to fear the world because of the world's hatred? And yet, even though we might fear the world because of their hatred, we have absolute confidence that we are kept in the midst of the world. And notice that the Lord's concern for his people is not that they would be kept out of the world or be taken out of the world. In verse 11, he describes the Father's work of keeping them. In verse 12, his own work of keeping and guarding them. But look down at verse 15. He prays again. In verse 15, I do not ask you to take them out of the world, but to keep them from the evil one. And notice the Lord's concern. His concern is not, he doesn't pray that the Father would take us out of the world or that the Father would keep us from persecution or that we might have an easy time in the world. He doesn't pray that his people might become great in the world, have it easy in the world, become rich in the world, be men and women of great reputation in the world. What is his concern? That we might be kept and preserved even though we are left in the world. The Lord does not pray that the Father would keep them from tribulation or from trials. He does not pray that the Father would keep them from suffering or from persecution, but he prays that the Father would keep them through all of those things. That is the Lord's concern. God is not interested in making us happy. God is interested in making us holy. It is not our happiness that concerns him. It is our holiness that concerns him. And he will make us holy. And if making us holy involves taking us and allowing us to go through trials and tribulations and persecution, then that is what the Lord will do. But here is his promise. He will keep us through all of that so that those who belong to him, not one of them will be lost. And the Lord knows that the world is a threatening place. And the Lord knows that the world is going to hate his people. And we are buffeted by Satan, who hates us and would love to destroy us. We are hated by the world, who hates us and would love to destroy us. And we are hated by unbelievers who would love to destroy us. And the world system and the unbelievers and Satan all work in concert together to oppose God and his purposes and his people. But the Lord's concern for his people is that the Father would keep them through all of that. Even though we are in the world, he doesn't want us to be of the world, but kept from the evil one. The Lord's concern is for the purity of his own people. So notice how he prays in verse 11. I come to you, Holy Father, keep them in your name. That phrase, Holy Father, that designation for God, it's a very interesting one. This is the only place in all of the Gospels where Jesus uses that title for the Father. And it is interesting in the New Testament, one commentator that I read brought this out. It's interesting in the New Testament how seldom holiness is connected to the Father in the New Testament in terms of his, uh, in terms of his character. That doesn't mean that the Father is no longer holy. It means that the emphasis in the Old Testament was on the holiness of God. The emphasis in the New Testament seems to be upon the, 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 the love of the Father. And it's not that these two things are in conflict. It's just that here the Lord Jesus is zeroing in on the holiness element of God's character. And that's something that sort of stands out in the rest of the New Testament. Not that God is not holy. We know that he is. And we know from the Old Testament that God is a loving God. But it's just interesting the, the emphasis in both Testaments. One commentator said this, it's almost as if in the Old Testament the Jews and the people had to remind, be reminded time and again that God is holy, holy, holy. But by the time we get to the New Testament, the Jews were absolutely convinced of the holiness of God. And they had almost come up with an idea of God that he was, he was unapproachable because of his holiness and that he was far off and distant and we couldn't be related to him. And then in the person of Christ, we see the holiness of God manifested, but in such a way that he, our God, even though he is holy, is also approachable. Why is it that the Lord Jesus emphasizes the title holiness here, 
Holy Father. Why does he use it in this context? I think it is because of this. His concern for his people is that we might be kept holy in the world. And if God is holy, and if God hates sin, then you and I can know for sure that he will be intent upon making his people holy. And his people hate sin. Matthew Henry writes this, If God be holy and hates sin, he will make those that are his holy, and he will keep them from sin, which they also hate and dread as the greatest evil. What is God's concern for his people? That we might be kept pure and holy in the midst of a wicked and perverse generation. That we might be kept holy in the midst of an unholy world. And that we would not perish in unholiness as the rest of the world will. And so he addresses God as Holy Father because his emphasis is on that element of God's character which will keep his people through the midst and in the midst of the world. And so notice his request. Holy Father, keep them in your name, the name which you have given me. Keep them. The word keep there is a word that was used of, of watching over or guarding something, just so, sort of an, uh, an external guarding, just watching and observing over something. And the emphasis here is on the Father being the one who might look over this special people that the Father has given to the Son. And this is the desire of the Son that the Father might keep, watch over, and guard His people. From what? From the world, from the evil one, from temptation, from sin, from impurity. That is God's desire. That is God's, that is what God works to do in the sanctifying process, which is why Jesus says in John 17, sanctify them by the truth. Your word is truth because God's desire is the holiness of his people. And he watches over you and I for that purpose. And when he sees unholiness, he prunes us, like we saw in John chapter 15. He prunes those things which hinder our holiness so as to make us a holy people. And here, the Lord Jesus Christ is describing that element of God's character which might preserve his people, God's holiness. Holy Father, keep them in the name, the name which you have given to me. Now, when we talked about the name of God back in verse 6, and this is why I read it at the beginning so you would be reminded of that. Remember verse 6, I have manifested your name to the men whom you gave me out of the world. They were yours, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. What did we say that it meant for Jesus to have manifested the name of God? It meant more than for him just to come into the world and say, God's name is Yahweh. Everybody got it? Mission accomplished. That wasn't it, was it? That The name was a designation or a way of describing all that was true of that character and that person. And that's how God's name is used. When we say that his name is a mighty tower, a refuge, and the righteous run into it, what we mean is that God himself in his majesty, in his glory, in his person, in the infiniteness of his, and the beauty of his person is worthy of our adoration, our confidence, and our trust. So when we speak of the name of the Lord, we are describing all that is true of God. And that's what Jesus did. He came to reveal to us all that is true of the Father. Because in him the fullness of God dwells in bodily form. And we see him, and thus we see the nature and character of the Father. So what then does it mean to be kept in the name of God? Is this some special designation, some special name that the Father has given to the Son? That's not it at all. What it means is that the Son is praying, the Lord Jesus is praying, that the Father may keep or preserve his people in and through and by and for all that is true of God. In other words, May your holiness preserve them, your majesty preserve them, your glory, your righteousness, your justice, your truth. May all of these things serve to protect and to keep your people. May they be kept in and by that all that all that designates who God is. That's the idea. May they keep them in may you keep them in your name, the name which you have given to me. And the name that the Father had given to the Son was the name or the manifestation of the glory and the person of God that the Son was to reveal to us, which he did. Now, there are three different things that Jesus might mean when he says, keep them in your name. It might be that he means keep them for your name's sake. 
That's the first possibility. For your name's sake. That would be as if the Lord Jesus were to say, keep them so that in falling away they might not blaspheme your name. Keep them for your own reputation's sake, for your name's sake. That might be what the Lord Jesus means. Now we're familiar with that idea because you remember after the children of Israel came out of the wilderness and God said, and they uh, sinned so grievously at the foot of the mountain and God said, I'm going to destroy these people and make of you, Moses, another nation. What did Moses say? Don't do that. You've brought them this far. And if they perish and if you destroy them, then what will the other nations say? That God was able to bring them out of the wilderness and then let them die and your name will be blasphemed. And so Moses was interested in the honor of God's name, his reputation. It may be that that's what Jesus is saying. Keep them so that none of them may perish and your name be blasphemed as a God who cannot save people fully. Or it might be that what he means by that is keep them in the knowledge of your name. In other words, the name which I manifested to them that they have come to know and believe and trust in, keep them in that so that they never forget that, so that they grow in that, so that in their understanding of who you are, they are kept in that. Or it may mean, third, that Jesus is saying, keep them by your name. That is, keep them according to all that is true of you. I think it could be one or more or any of those possibilities that Jesus is describing there. He's just praying that the Father may keep and guard those whom the Father has given to the Son. The Son was going back to the Father. The Son, by the way, will not cease His keeping work. He's still doing that even in heaven. He's keeping those who are His so that He might present to the Father all those whom the Father has given to Him at the end of time. So the Son is still doing that work. And here He is praying that the Father may do the very thing that the Son has been doing all along. And the Father most certainly will do this, will He not? Will the Father keep those whom the Son has committed to Him? We have here in the Trinity, the Father giving a people to the Son and saying, Son, save them, secure them, sanctify them, bring them all in. And the Son saying, I'll do it. And He gathers in these people and He commits them back to the Father. And so you have both persons in the Trinity interested in our salvation and in our perseverance in that salvation. Keep them in your name. And what is the goal of this? What is the goal of the Father keeping us? Notice the result, the end of verse 11 which you have given me, that they may be one even as we are one. That they may be one. This is the unity. Some type of a unity is intended here. The goal of the Father keeping the people whom the Son has committed to Him, the ultimate goal of that, the result of that, is a unity. Now we're going to talk more about this unity and what it is and what it isn't in coming weeks. I want you to notice verse, that this idea of unity is mentioned again down in verse 21 and 22. So I'm going to put it off until then, talking about what true unity is. Verse 21, that they may all be one, even as you, Father, are in me, and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you sent me. The glory which you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, just as we are one. There is a oneness and a unity that is intended as a result of the Father answering this prayer. There is a unity that is to exist as a result of the Father keeping a people and the Son keeping a people. What does that unity look like? We're going to put it off a little bit until verses 21 and 22. But I'm going to answer part of, I'm going to describe part of that unity, at least in connection to this text this morning. Some people think that the unity that is to exist in the body of Christ is an outward unity. That we're supposed to link arms with Catholics and and Mormons and anybody who names the name of Christ, no matter what their theological bent, no matter what it is that they teach, we're all supposed to be one and appear to be one, that that's what Jesus is talking about. That's not what Jesus is talking about. That's not true unity. Unity that he's describing is a unity around the truth. In fact, the unity that he's describing here. Picture it this way. He is praying that the Father may preserve and keep all who belong to Him so that they may be one. Now let me ask you this question. If one of those or two of those, or let's just say five or six of those, whom the Father had given to the Son were to fall away and perish eternally, then in eternity you would have a mass of people who are saved and in glory, who belong to the Son, 
and a group of people who are not saved, who were saved for a period of time and have fallen away and gone into eternal damnation. Now let me ask you that question. With people given to the Son who are in hell and people given to the Son who are in heaven, are they really one? Is there really true unity there? Are they all one body, if that is the case? They're not. So what is Jesus praying? He is praying that as a result of the Father keeping all of them and losing none of them, that they may not be a people, some of whom perish and some of whom do not, but they are all together in eternal glory. We will stand in eternity and we will look around and we will see that not one person who has been committed to the Son for salvation is lost. Not one. We will all be one. We will be one in Christ. Not some of us in hell and some of us in heaven. The ones that fell away, the ones that weren't able to keep it up in hell, and the ones that were able to keep it up, and the ones that were able to maintain their salvation in heaven. That is not true unity. The goal of this preservation and this keeping work of the Father is that all of us may be one in heaven. And if even one individual is lost, then we're not all one, are we? We can't be. If some of Christ's people perish everlastingly in eternal hell, then they're not all one. This keeping work of the Father is described, and I'm going to give you a couple of the passages, and I'll just read them to you. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you entirely, and may your spirit and soul and body be preserved complete without blame at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Faithful is he who calls you, and he also will bring it to pass. Paul is confident that those who have been called and those who have been saved will be brought to eternal glory, and he says all of this rests upon the faithfulness of God. Because he is faithful, he will do what he is intended to do. 2 Timothy 4.18, The Lord will rescue me from every evil deed and will bring me safely to his heavenly kingdom. To him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Who will bring me to his heavenly kingdom? God will do it. The Father is intent upon the preservation and the keeping of his people. 1 Peter 1, verses 3-5, through 5, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to obtain an inheritance which is imperishable and undefiled and will not fade away, reserved in heaven for you who are kept, protected by the power of God through faith for salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. Peter says there is an inheritance reserved for you in heaven for you who are kept by the power of God. What What is involved in the keeping of God's people? What does that? What accomplishes that? It's his power. We are kept and preserved by the power of God. We need the grace and the power of God to bring us into a state of grace, and we need the grace and the power of God to keep us in a state of grace. And God is the one who does that. The Father keeps those whom the Son has committed to him. Jude chapter 1, Jude, interestingly, Jude is a fascinating book because it begins and ends with this same sentiment expressed. Jude chapter 1, Jude, a bondservant of, sorry, did I say chapter 1? Verse 1. Jude only has one chapter just in case you're counting. Jude verse 1. Jude, a bondservant of Jesus Christ and brother of James, to those who are called, beloved in God the Father, and kept for Jesus Christ. You're beloved, you're called, and you're kept. That is what God does. Jude 24 and 25. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to make you stand in the presence of his glory, blameless with great joy, to the only God our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory and majesty and dominion and authority before all time, both now and forever. This is the one who is able to present us faultless before his throne because God is the one who does this work of keeping us and preserving us and presenting us blameless before his throne. I am describing to you the doctrine of the perseverance of the saints or what some people commonly call eternal security. 
The believer is secure, not because the believer himself is strong or because the believer himself has enough faith or because the believer is able to keep himself. We are kept by the power of God for our inheritance. This work of keeping his people is the work that the Father and the Son do together, and they are intent on doing it so that none will be lost, so that we all will be one in eternity. That is the goal. That is what the Father is committed to, and that is what the Son is committed to. That describes the Father's keeping work. Now look at verse 12, and this is the Son's work of keeping his people. Notice how Jesus describes his own act of keeping. Verse 12, while I was with them, I was keeping them in your name. That is the very thing that the Lord Jesus has asked the Father to do. He has been doing this whole time for this group of men for whom he is praying. While I was with them, I was keeping them in your name, which you have given me, and I guarded them, and not one of them perished. We'll get to the last part of that verse in just a second. I guarded them. So there is the keeping element and the guarding element. The word keeping or keep is the very same word that's used of the Father's keeping work in verse 11. And the word guarded is a slightly different word, and it has the idea of looking out and watching for external threats. And this is it's interesting that the Lord Jesus would use this of himself since he is the good shepherd. And what does a shepherd do? A shepherd keeps the sheep from wandering off because of something that they do, and the shepherd also guards them against external threats. So what is it that the son does for his people? He guards his people from external threats, false teachers and wolves and things that threaten them, so that they do not hear or follow the voice of a stranger, but they only follow after the voice of the good shepherd. And that's what the son has done. The son is involved in this keeping work too now. He keeps just as he's asking the father to keep. And he guards from external threats so that we are protected from all enemies, foreign and domestic, as it were. We are protected against all enemies, those that come from within ourselves so that we cannot fall and falter. And we are kept from those enemies which might be outside of us, threatening to undo us. And the son is interested in guarding us and keeping us and preserving us from both of those dangers. That is why we are kept in the hand of the Father and the Son, as it were in John chapter 10, and we can't jump out and no man can pluck them out of his hand or out of the Father's hand because the Father is greater. Uh, the Father and the Son are the same. They are one. And so we are protected by both the Father's hand and the Son's hand. The good shepherd saves and secures all of his own sheep. So Jesus uses those two words, keeping and guarding. And then look at verse 12. He kept them in your name, which you, we have given. Sorry. I kept them in your name, which you have given me, and I guarded them, and not one of them perished, but the son of perdition, so that the scripture might be fulfilled. Now, this is an interesting phrase, and this actually produces for us just that one little phrase, two little theological issues that we have to deal with. It seems to suggest as if Judas is the one exception to this, does it not? I've kept them all. Not one of them has perished, but Judas except Judas, the son of perdition. And the text doesn't say Judas, but that's what Jesus intends there with the reference to the son of perdition. It's a Hebraism, a Hebrew figure of speech, meaning a son or one who is characterized by or fit for and deserves eternal destruction. So he kept all of them except Judas. Now, is Judas the exception to this? In other words, did the father give to Jesus all 12 of those men, including Judas, so that the son would be, the intention was, to save even Judas? If that's the case, and Judas perished, then that means that the son didn't save all whom the father gave to him, doesn't it? It means that at least one in 12 failed to believe or failed to be kept, failed to preserve. Is Judas that one exception? Or is Judas indicative of all of history and 
are one in 12 of you going to be lost as well? Not one in 12 of us, but you. I know where I'm going. But is it possible that one out of every 12 of us would be lost, just like Judas was one out of the 12 that was lost? Is he the exception? Is he one that the son failed to save and failed to keep? Was Judas ever a believer? You realize there is no indication anywhere in Scripture that Judas was ever a believer. Every single time his name is mentioned, he is called a traitor. He is designated as the one who would betray Christ. He's called the son of perdition. And Jesus in John chapter 6, not long after Judas was chosen, Jesus in John chapter 6 called him a devil. Jesus knew from the very beginning what Judas was. He knew from the very beginning Judas' heart. He knew everything Judas did. He knew Judas was stealing money out of the money bag. He knew he was crooked and corrupt and wicked. But doesn't the text seem to suggest that 11 of them he kept, but one of them he lost? Read it again. I guarded them, and not one of them perished, but the son of perdition, so that the scripture would be fulfilled. Is Judas the exception? Was Judas given to the son for Jesus to save? Had his sins paid for? Given eternal life? Indwelt by the Spirit of God? and then perished because of his sin? The answer to that is no. No, and I will tell you why. The word but in this verse, and we use the word but the same way, it can be taken as an adversative and not an acceptive. That sounds real technical and difficult to catch here, but I'll say it again. It can be taken as an adversative or as an acceptive. Let me give you the two ways that the word can be used. It is, by the way, in this context, I believe it is an adversative and not an acceptive. Here's how we would use it. If we mean it's an acceptive, that means that 12 men were given and he saved all of them except Judas. That is, one from among the group that was not saved, but he was part of this group. If we take the word but as an adversative, then he is contrasting Judas, who was never part of this group who perished, with the group that he saved. In other words, the intention is to contrast Judas and make Judas not part of that group. Rather than part of the group accepted, he is not part of that group. It's an adversative. It's on opposite sides, two different groups. Do you get that? Let me give you an illustration. Let's say you have me over for dinner and you're serving up ice cream. And you say, we have ice cream toppings. We have sprinkles, chocolate sauce, caramel sauce, strawberries, blueberries, bananas, and nuts. And what do you want on your ice cream? What do you like on your ice cream? And I say, well, I like all those toppings except nuts. No sane person should ever put nuts on their ice cream. So I like all of those except nuts. That's using, I like all of those but the nuts. And I'm saying, I don't want nuts on my ice cream because crazy people put nuts on ice cream, so don't put nuts on my ice cream. I'm saying that there's a group of, the group of ice cream toppings, but one of them, I like all of them except for one of them. Now, if you say to me, what do you like on your ice cream? Do you like chocolate sauce, caramel sauce, uh, bananas, or strawberries? And I say, I like all of those. But no cabbage. No cabbage on my ice cream. Then what I am doing, am I am using the term but there in an adversative way, saying this does not belong in that group. That's the way the Lord Jesus is using it here. And it's what William Hendrickson in his commentary describes as a shortened expression. This was the assumed or intended meaning of it. Jesus is saying, all of those whom you have given to me, I have preserved all of them, and not one of them is lost. But Judas, he's a different animal. He's not one of those who are given. The salvation of those whom he keeps is contrasted here with the damnation of Judas who was fit for destruction. 
That's the intention. He's not saying he's able to save all of them except one. He is saying, I have saved all of them. And there is one who is not saved, and he is different. He is not one of those who was given by the Father to the Son for the Son to save. J.C. Ryle says this, Our Lord does not mean no one of those given to me is lost except the son of perdition. What he does mean is not one of those given to me is lost. On the other hand, and in contrast, Judas, a man not given to me, a graceless man, is lost. That's the intention. You got that? So Judas is not the exception to this, not at all. In fact, if you look just over at the next chapter, chapter 18, verse 9, you'll see this is when Jesus is arrested. Verse 8, Jesus answered those who questioned him, I told you that I am he, so if you seek me, let these go their way, speaking of the disciples, to fulfill the word which he spoke, of those whom you have given me, I lost not one. And Simon Peter then, having a sword, drew it and struck it, and so the evening goes on. Notice there that John quotes Jesus from chapter 17, but he doesn't include the exception, as it were, Judas. He just sees this as the fulfillment of what Jesus said. There's no exception mentioned in chapter 18 because there was no exception intended. It's a contrast that is intended, not an exception in verse 12. Now, the second theological issue, now that kind of raises the one of, is Judas the exception to this? The answer is no, he's no exception because he was never part of that group that the father gave to the son. The second theological issue is this. Was Judas then a free acting character in this drama since his betrayal ended up fulfilling scripture? Because Jesus says in verse 12, I guarded them and not one of them perished, but the son of perdition, so that the scripture would be fulfilled. Now, if Judas's actions fulfilled scripture, then did Judas really have a free will? And I use the term free there, not in the sense that many of us use the term free as in he could have done anything, but did, did, did Judas really have a responsible and real choice in this whole drama if his actions were in fact the fulfillment of scripture? Now, first of all, what scriptures were fulfilled by Judas's actions. Let me give you two of them. Many people point to Psalm 41, verse 9, which says, Even my close friend in whom I trusted, who ate my bread, has lifted up his heel against me. Jesus quoted that back in chapter 13, speaking of Judas when he was identifying the betrayer in his midst. He quoted Psalm 41, verse 9. There's another psalm that Peter quotes on after Pentecost, sorry, before Pentecost in Acts chapter 2. Peter quotes, no, sorry, Acts chapter 1. Peter quotes Psalm 109, verses 4 and following, and here's what that passage reads. In return for my love, they act as my accusers, but I am in prayer. Thus they have repaid me evil for good and hatred for my love. Appoint a wicked man over him and let an accuser stand at his right hand. When he is judged, let him come forth guilty and let his prayer become sin. Let his days be few. Let another take his office. Remember, Peter quoted that when he was fulfilling uh, Judas's office by selecting Matthias to replace Judas after Judas had defected. So Peter quotes Psalm 109, verses 4 and following, and that passage as being a prophecy of Judas's betrayal. And he says, this is fulfilled, and so we are instructed in Scripture to let another take his office. And Peter was right, and that's what the apostles did. So those are the two passages that are quoted from the Old Testament that refer to and predict Judas's betrayal. Now, just in case the theology we covered in Sunday school was not enough for you, Here's one for you. If Judas's betrayal was predicted in Scripture, and Scripture had to be fulfilled, and it could not be otherwise, because God's word cannot be broken, then did Judas really have a choice in betraying the Lord Jesus? Or was he forced to do so? The answer to that is that Judas is not an automaton. He was not forced to betray the Lord Jesus. 
God did not coerce Judas to make Judas sin, to betray the Lord Jesus Christ so that Scripture would be fulfilled. Rather, the decree of God included the sin of Judas so that Judas' sin would end up fulfilling the very Scripture that God predicted. What Judas did, he did as a free moral agent, able to choose not to do that. He desired darkness. He loved darkness. He expressed the wicked intentions of his dark and wicked heart and his corrupt nature. All of that he did. He did exactly what he desired to do. But guess what? The eternal decree of God decreed that he, God, would use Judas's sin sinlessly. And this is the work and the mystery of divine providence. How is it that God is able to use the sinful choices of human beings to accomplish his will? We don't understand exactly how that is, but we know that God does it. And that's the work of providence. God used the sinful choices of Joseph's brothers to sell Joseph into slavery. And when all of that drama was undone, Joseph said, God sent me here to preserve a place for you. What you intended for evil, God intended for good. What they willed with a wicked will, God willed with a holy will. And God willed to use their sinful choices and their sinful activities to accomplish His purposes. And so God uses sin sinlessly. That is to say that God does not sin in using sinful men and their sinful choices and their sinful deeds to accomplish His purposes. And that's what Peter points out in Acts chapter 2 when he says that Herod and Pontius Pilate and all the kings of the earth were allied against the Holy One and against His anointed and they crucified the Son of God. And yet that was the very predetermined and predestined plan of God for that to happen. God uses the sinful choices of sinful men sinlessly to accomplish His perfect work. And so was Judas coerced to do this? No, in the decree of God it was determined that Judas's sinful choice would in fact fulfill the Scripture concerning him. But what Judas did, he did quite freely. By his own will, by his own choice, in his own volition, expression of his own sinful desires. That's the outworking of divine sovereignty and human responsibility. And we see it right here in passages like this. All right, now this passage is intended to be an an encouragement to us, so what do we take away from this? Let me give you a couple of things. First, apostates are really no danger to the plan and purpose of God. We need to remember that. Apostates are no danger to the plan and purpose of God. There was an apostate among the twelve that did not put into jeopardy the plan and purposes of God concerning his own. There are apostates in the churches all over this country. There are apostates in almost every church in the land. There are people who are not truly believers who sit amongst the people of God Sunday after Sunday. The existence of those apostates in no way jeopardizes those who truly belong to the Lord Jesus Christ. He is able to keep and to preserve those who are truly his, even though there might be tares among the wheat and there might be wolves among the sheep. Because he knows those who are his and he is able to keep them. And the existence of apostates does not endanger at all his plan or his purposes for us. He is able to keep all of us. All of us. Even though there are Judases among us. I'm not pointing fingers at anybody saying you're a Judas. I'm just saying that the existence of Judases among the people of God is no danger or threat to those who truly belong to to God. Because he keeps his own. Second, We need to remember that the triune God is keeping us. The Father who Himself loves us, the Father who has given us to His Son, the Father who Himself has decreed this and chosen us before the foundation in His Son so that we might be holy and blameless before Him in love, the Father who gave us to His Son and committed us to the Son is in response to the Son keeping His people because that is the Father's will. The Father's will is that not one of those whom He has given to the Son would be lost. That's why Jesus said in John chapter 6, verse 40 and 39 and 40, 
This is the Father's will. This is the will of him who sent me, that of all that he has given me, I lose nothing, but raise it all up on the last day. This is the will of my Father, that those who behold the Son and believe upon him may have eternal life, and I will raise them up on the last day. That's the Father's will. So the Father is involved in keeping his people. Second, the Son is obviously involved in this work of keeping his people. Just because the Son has left and gone back to heaven does not mean that he just washed his hands of us and committed everything to the Father. The Son himself continues to intercede for his people in heaven, to sympathize with his people in heaven, and to be involved in the work of securing his sheep. The Good Shepherd is alive and intent and focused even right now in heaven on your preservation and my preservation as his people. And third, the Holy Spirit is involved in keeping his people because it says in Ephesians chapter 1 that we are sealed with the Holy Spirit who's given to us as a down payment, a pledge of the inheritance which we will receive. And Jesus said in John chapter 14 that the Spirit is given to those who believe and dwells within us and will be with us forever. So the Father is keeping us, the Son is keeping us, and the Spirit is keeping us. Now let me ask you this, if you are in the Son's hand and you are in the Father's hand and the triune God is intent on keeping you and preserving you and bringing you to eternal glory to be with Him, then is it possible for one of His to perish? It is not. It is not. It is possible for those who think they belong to Him and profess to belong to Him and pretend to belong to Him, it's possible for them to perish. They will perish because they're the Judases. But those who are truly His... He has kept all of them, and he will keep all of them, no exceptions, so that we may be one, and we will all stand in glory. And if you are in the Son, you are safe, because the triune God is keeping you. That is why Paul could say, I know whom I have believed, and I am persuaded that he is able to keep that which I have committed to him against that day. And so we do. We entrust ourselves to him. Let's bow our heads. Our Father, you are so gracious to provide and plan and purpose such a salvation that is free to us, that is permanent, and that secures our salvation everlastingly. Thank you, God, for your eternal purposes, which can never be thwarted or changed or altered. We thank you that you know all things before they happen, that you sovereignly rule in the affairs of men. We thank you that there is nothing that takes you by surprise. The presence of apostates and mere professors and wolves amongst your true people can never thwart your purposes or your plans. They can never keep you from keeping us. And so we thank you for that. We thank you that we can rest securely in Christ Our blessed triune God, thank you for keeping us and preserving us for eternal glory. We look forward to being one with all the saints in eternal glory to the praise of your great name. May you be glorified in and through us. Be glorified through your church, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you for listening to the latest podcast from Kootenai Church. If you'd like to learn more about Kootenai Church or to donate to our church ministry, you can do so online by visiting KootenyChurch.org. We hope you enjoyed this podcast and pray you'll join us again next time. Once again, thank you for listening.